This evening reading taken from our Gospel, Colossians chapter 2, from verses 6 to 15, on page 1183, 1183. Spiritual fullness in Christ. So then, just as you receive Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes your captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head of every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hand. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sin and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the chains of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed and the power of authority, he made a public spectacle of them, thumping upon them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. <clears throat> um, regular members of St. John's will be aware that uh, for the past few months we've been renewing our church vision with a three-part sermon series, asking God to revive us, um, to equip us to speak about Jesus and our faith. And now in this final path, we're going through the book of Colossians to find new understanding in how we can be built up in our faith both individually and as a church family. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter whilst he was in prison in Rome, quite a long way away um, from Colossae. And he was prompted to write it by a visit from the founder of the church, a guy called Epaphras. Things were going rather badly. Um, let us pray. Father, we read uh, Colossians and it can be so easy to think, oh yeah, that was then. 
But Father, we know that that is also now. Um, And that you have included this book in your word because of its absolute relevance to us today. So Father, would you allow us to hear you speak to us and to soften our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, you occasionally, well actually quite a lot of the time, you get to a passage in scripture which is quite confronting. Um, And I think this is one of them and I'm not actually going to take every single bit of it. I want to draw out a sort of a few general things, but I'm going to start with a question um, because I think this is at the heart of it. Do you believe um, in Jesus and his work on the cross and that they are all we need for salvation? And to be clear, by salvation I mean being rescued from our sin and all its consequences, which include death and separation from God and we're being rescued from that by Jesus' death and resurrection. It it is a confronting question Um, and I imagine I imagine that most of us here this evening would say yes and yet you know I also imagine not just some of us here perhaps some of us listening at a later time because we're on audio later um there would be a question mark about that certainty of Jesus' place in our lives. And it's a challenge, and perhaps it's a recurring challenge. But essentially, that question underlines Paul's letter to this small church. Um, And it caused him to really develop his thinking on Jesus, the purpose of salvation, a letter that was written by any practical measure, historically and even in the day, Colossae was not that important. Um, And it very quickly just disappeared, came off the map, and there's nothing left of it now, nothing at all. So why would Paul arguably waste what many have called the pinnacle of his thinking on on a small house church? Perhaps a few dozen people, we don't know. But it wasn't big. Now, I don't know the answer to that. Um, But doesn't it have the mark of God all over it? Wasn't Jesus forever reaching out to those on the edges, those that we think are unimportant? And Paul is no different. He'd heard from Epaphras, As trouble was brewing, brothers and sisters, having once been firm in the faith, are floundering. Um, And let me encourage us all this evening, and perhaps there may be somebody here feeling a bit like a lost sheep, derailed from what you once believed, lost in a bit of a spiritual battle, wondering, is Jesus really enough? Then Jesus is with you, even now doing battle on your behalf by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the words of this letter to the Colossians. So the issue wasn't the size of the church and how important it was. The issue was the enormity of the spiritual battle that they were caught up in. And Paul responds with his heart and his mind on absolutely full alert. 
So as we've heard in the past few weeks, the letter begins with genuine encouragement and delight in these brothers and sisters. He delights to see how disciplined they are, how firm their faith is. And Paul has never met them, of course, you're probably aware of this. Um, But he wants them to know how deeply known they are, how deeply loved they are. They are sinners like him, saved by grace alone. Hallelujah. That is how we're saved. And then we get to these few verses, and Paul begins by what seems a sort of gentle, firm encouragement. Carry on the good work, guys. Continue to live your lives, you know, rooted and built up and strengthened in the faith as you were taught it, and overflowing with thankfulness. Carry on. And then, then he slips in a warning. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, verse 8, do have that open, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. Now, we're never told exactly what the hollow and deceptive philosophy is, and actually, um, over the years, commentators have deduced what they were, specifically by Paul's response and by the things he says. Let me give you an analogy. So in the world of counseling and psychotherapy, there's been over the past hundred years or so a bit of a standoff between two schools of thought around the work of a man called Carl Rogers. Now some of you may have heard of him. Um, He comes up in pub quizzes. Uh, but actually he was very influential and was the founder of person-centered therapy. Um, often adopted, actually, by Christian organizations. Now, he taught a certain number, six of them, well, arguably six, core conditions for therapeutic change. And they were both necessary and sufficient for that therapeutic change to happen. Those who were opposed used to maintain they were necessary, but they weren't sufficient. Now, you know, back in the day when I was training therapists, I used to love to throw that one in as a sort of discuss. Um, And quite a lot of different things would come back. However, the serious point here is this is exactly actually what Paul was addressing in Colossae. The gospel tells us that in Jesus we have everything that is both necessary and sufficient for salvation and to be fully alive in him. And yet members of the church family were being gradually taken captive by the idea that although Jesus was necessary, he wasn't sufficient. He wasn't sufficient. The Colossian church, they were living, just to give us a bit of kind of context for the church, in a small city entangled in huge philosophical and spiritual power games. And the most influential were a group of Greek citizens called Gnostics. I mean, in a sense, we don't need to get too hung up on who they were, except that they were looking at the so-called simplicity of what the Colossian Christians believed. 
and basically told them, you are way off point, guys. You are absolutely lost. Nothing wrong with Jesus, but what you really need is our enlightened special knowledge to overcome the powers of the universe. And this, my friends, is a universe alive with demons and angels. And look at the stars, each one with the power to intervene in your life. So the Gnostics believed that they alone were enlightened. They alone had secret powers and rites of passage to mediate with these powers and principalities. Now, I was a child of the 60s. A little bit wild, uh, you know, not too bad, but all the flower power, ban the bomb, um, raised in a Christian home with parents who I am sure did believe that Jesus was Lord and Savior. I mean, you know, we went to church every week, but you know, in the day, sex, politics, money, religion, you kind of didn't really talk about it around the dinner table, at least my parents didn't. Sleepy Anglican church, solid teaching, but little application. And, you know, in my teenage years, I just drifted off from church. But actually, I didn't drift away from God. And in my 20s, I came across these extraordinary people who talked about Jesus as if he was real, as if he was alive, as if he was somebody special. It was a revelation, actually. And then I, in my later 20s, encountered the power of the Holy Spirit, and I understood the significance of the cross and my sinfulness. And I gave my life to Jesus, and I began to read God's word. And in my astonishment, I found myself in there. I found my sins there. I found encouragement in God's word. I found myself taught and convicted rather than judged by what I read in the Bible. God's grace, brothers and sisters, does not condemn us, but disciplines us in love. And at the same time, all the kind of pre-New Age spirituality was taking hold. It was all around. Some of it was fascinating, enticing. And although none of it for me, by God's grace, came close to making as much sense as Jesus did, I couldn't stand here and tell you I wasn't enticed. I wasn't feeling seduced by some of the stuff that was going on. And that has happened at different periods, you know, over 40-odd years. There was a battle, and there still is. Ephesians six twelve, you know this scripture, reminds us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That was the Colossian struggle. I want to focus on just two specific issues that we know Paul deals with, not because they are explicitly stated, but by the emphatic statements that he makes in this overall spiritual battle. 
So number one, is Jesus really God's only son? Is he really the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? Yes, says Paul, look at verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Second, is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross really both necessary and sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins? Is that sacrifice enough to wipe clean the slate of our sins? Over the years, I have, my own children had it, and I've handed it out to grandchildren and other friends. You know those wonderful magic drawing things? And I often imagine, you know, you write down your sins, and then you go chop and they've gone. You know, that's what Jesus did on the cross. Chomp, and it's gone. It's fabulous, isn't it? I mean, we have a part to play. Let's not forget that. So, yes, says Paul, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, and what's he done with it? He's nailed it to the cross. So, brothers and sisters, if we're to live in Christ, to be fully alive in him, this is what we believe. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was both necessary and sufficient to take away our sins. You know, there are so many people around, and increasingly so, and I have close friends who would say this, Jesus is a really good person. Some may even think he's God's son, but he's all a bit blurry, and I'm not quite sure. But struggle with the sufficiency, the supremacy of Jesus. They cannot see Jesus as Lord of all, and basically Jesus isn't enough. It's as simple as that. And they see themselves, and I don't think it's a, Actually, I think it's a spiritual arrogance, and I think it's, it comes from powers and principalities, as having a more sophisticated, all-embracing 21st century spirituality, feeding on a kind of a spiritual soup of Christianity, a bit of Buddhism, throw in some eco-spirituality. There's a lot of climate and creation spirituality around, and, you know, healing the land, as Christians, for us, that's an absolute no-brainer. We worship the one who created all things. He did it. We don't need to worship the things he created. We worship the one who created them all. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I mean, nothing tops the creator. 
Do you believe that in Jesus we have all we need for salvation? I'll leave that one for each of us to answer for ourselves. But if you say no to that question, I wonder then what's held you back. I wonder then what has challenged you. And I'm going to assume that some of the no may be linked to those two statements that Paul has made. But also for some of us, it may just be about disappointments, unanswered prayer, a general wondering about the relevance of the gospel message. Could I encourage us, please, not to sit alone with it? Whether there's one of you here this evening or you have a friend, please seek them out. Don't let them sit alone, particularly somebody who once knew the gospel and has kind of drifted away. Would you come alongside? Would you listen? Would you pray? I'd love to hear from any of you, as I'm sure different ones of us this evening would. But if you've said yes to that question, and if you believe that Jesus is both necessary and sufficient for salvation, I wonder how you've kept that faith alive, day after day, year after year. How have you been built up in Christ? Just a few weeks ago, I discovered one of my neighbors is a restorer of arts and artifacts. And her aim is to reveal the original image of, of the creator. Uh, and it involves very sensitive removal of anything that's been added or superimposed to the original. Her job is faithfully restore the painting to its original glory. And she's currently working one of our great uh, London cathedrals, where years of dust and grime have taken hold. And I found it such a helpful analogy in thinking about this passage, because this was Paul's task when he wrote to the church in Colossae. He needed to deal with the gradual layers of false teaching that were sort of subtly coming in, obscuring the original message of the gospel. But do you notice Paul didn't go in with harsh words and condemnation and deep correction? I mean, he can do it. Any more than my neighbor would dream of attacking and painting with some kind of abrasive cleaner. No, he gave a clear warning, and then he chose his words and analogies exactly right for the Colossian church. And we can learn much from that as we seek to build one another up, revealing God's truth to one another, the image of the invisible God that we have in Jesus. As we share together, as we muddle through together, disagree perhaps on Bible passages, but not on those key salvation issues. How else can we stay alive in Christ against all that the world and the devil throw at us? When the early church hit their first opposition, the disciples Peter and John were brought before that very same court that had condemned Jesus to death. And it must have been terrifying. Um, Jesus had been crucified and in the minds of the Jewish leaders, well, that was yesterday's problem. But what kept them going? Um, 
I read this recently. I have shared this before, actually. But this is the verse in Acts 4.13. When they, the Jewish leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled ordinary men. They were astonished and took note. These men had been with Jesus. It's staggeringly simple. I mean, but let me... I can honestly just say that when I come to Jesus in daily prayer, in reading God's word, in fellowship with brothers and sisters, it refocuses, it revives, it restores flagging faith. It builds me up. And future longings and not knowings tend to be placed before the throne of grace and we trust in God's sovereignty again. These men had been with Jesus, and what a difference it made to their lives. And you know, the same difference is ours for the taking. Now, many of you know this. But when I look back now over 40 plus years of, and I'm not going to say it was daily, because it wasn't always daily. I mean, let's be honest about these things. But mostly so, being with Jesus, sharing God's word, struggling together against these spiritual powers and principalities, not giving up, not giving up. Even when, have you had a time of prayer which just feels like a dull duty? Yeah, I need to read my Bible. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray. It happens, doesn't it? But you know, there are other times, aren't there, of joy beyond belief. These are the things that keep you and me together, built up, rooted in him. God's mercies are new every morning, freely available, graciously given as we continue to live our lives in Christ. Nothing trumps the cross. We live in a battleground for our minds and for our very souls. The one sure foundation, the place where we can rest our weary souls and confuse minds is the work of a man called Jesus who was and is the Son of God, who died on a cross and who rose again and who is here this evening among us where two or three are gathered together in his name Jesus is here by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's end with prayer. Father, thank you for the work of the cross. Thank you that what you did in sending Jesus, your one and only son, to die on a cross for our salvation trumps all the powers and principalities, demons and angels, that surely are still there because the battle rages. And yet, Lord Jesus, nothing trumps the cross. And I pray now for each one of us. I pray for those of us who are confronted by the certainty of Jesus, that we may come before that throne of grace. And Father God, would you come by your spirit? Would you meet with us? Would you refresh us? in the knowledge of the love that you had for us in sending Jesus, in whose name we pray.
Amen.